We're going to read this morning's scripture reading, which is from Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. And you can find that on the screen behind me, or in your bulletins, or in your Bible. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be sub subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the, mo for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what a wonderful morning we've already had, that worship time and then seeing those kids up here. Uh, so, so wonderful. I just want to make a couple of comments before we uh, begin the, the actual sermon this morning. You know, we've been saying, we've been observing as we've thought about the year 2022 that there is a real hunger for community in people's hearts, which is why last week at our 16th anniversary celebration we had a, a picnic after church. And I want to acknowledge a couple things about what happened last week so that you can celebrate as well. We were expecting about 150 people uh, due to kind of the situation going on and because of the weather and stuff like that. Uh, it turns out there were almost 300 people at the picnic last week. And so the food that was ordered from Sonny's Barbecue apparently just multiplied, worked out fine, everybody got fed. And I was so excited that during the picnic, I didn't actually eat right off the bat, but I decided to just go around from table to table and meet people. And it was like a dream come true because there was so much laughter, there was so much community, uh, people that were relatively new to our church or people that were just coming back to church after a hiatus for a while were connecting and talking and laughing. And it was just an amazing day. And, uh, all sorts of good things. There's a lot of people that worked hard to put that together, including Allison Epps and, uh, and, and many, many others. But uh, to serve the food, uh, we counted on some people from our original core, the, the, the Johnsons and the Michelsons, and we appreciate them doing that. And then uh, we had a cake at the end. We had a 16th anniversary birthday cake that was baked by none other than Amy McKinney, and it was just, just delicious, and it was a great day. And I just want to acknowledge, because uh, the, the Bible talks about believers, believers taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And we got to 
experienced that last week, and so really grateful for that. But it's not always laughter and gladness uh, that we experience in our lives, is it? And we have uh, some in our church who have suffered some very, very grievous losses this past week. And so I wanna invite you to just pray with me this morning, uh, especially for Chris and Elizabeth Kendall, uh, Elizabeth's daughter, Adriana, uh, because of the loss of their daughter, Ellie, who um, was hit by a car when she was actually helping someone on the 408 just a few days ago and, uh, and passed away. It's a very sad, sad day for them. And I wanna, uh, a lot of you have rallied to pray for them and express your care and your support as you always do as a church family. And I think one of the best things we can do for them at this time would be to pray for them. So would you, would you bow your heads and join me in prayer? Lord, our hearts are sad this morning. Your word says that when, when one member of the body of Christ suffers, that all the members suffer with that person. Lord, you are the God of all comfort. And so we wanna pray this morning that you would bring comfort to those in our church who have suffered loss. Darren Baker and his family and the loss of his brother-in-law, Charlie, to COVID just a couple of days ago. And also this uh, tragic loss just a few days ago of Ellie. And we lift up our dear, dear brother and sister, Chris Kendall, Elizabeth Kendall, the loss of Elizabeth's daughter, Lord, we, we are so saddened to be in a fallen world where these types of things happen, where we know that a, it's, not, it's not normal for a child to die before her mother. And the pain is almost too much to bear. And so this morning as a church, we lift them up to you your word says to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What's happened, Lord, has been a tragedy, a mystery. And we are sad with our dear friends and as a church. And so we pray for your comfort. We pray that in these days of understandable grieving, of necessary grieving, and all kinds of emotions that you would bring the comfort that you can only bring, only you can bring. We lift them up to you in these days ahead. We know that there will be a memorial service. We pray that through it all, that your heart of love would shine through to Chris and Elizabeth, to Adriana, to their family members and their friends. We pray all these things in the name of the one who suffered loss for all of us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we continue this series in the book of Hebrews this morning, and in God's providence, we come to this passage from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse three. 
You want to know what this passage is about? This passage is an encouragement for all of us in this room to endure suffering as discipline, to endure hardship as discipline for our good. Now that's a tall order. There are three things in that one statement about the goal of this thing, about the goal of this message that we would, that we would endure hardship. Hardship enough is, is very difficult for us to swallow, especially when we're right in the thick of it. And this passage says to endure hardship. And then it says to endure hardship as discipline, as training. That's the second thing. And then for a greater good in our lives that God intended it for good. There's really a mystery about that, isn't there? Because Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much greater are my thoughts than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways. The title of the sermon is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way. These are his ways. So we're going to talk about three mysteries in this passage. You can sort of look at them as three stepping stones across this river. If you picture these few verses as a, as a river that we as a church this morning are walking across, there are three stepping stones. One would be the mystery, the first would be the mystery of suffering. The second would be the mystery of discipline. And the third would be the mystery of transformation. So that's our outline this morning. Let's begin by talking about the mystery of suffering. You'll notice that this passage talks very honestly, as does the rest of the Bible, about the reality of suffering in life and what they're going to, to expect. And I'd like you to look back at the passage beginning at verse 3. I want to just read a couple verses and point out a couple things about the mystery of suffering in this passage. It says in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Isn't it normal for us to feel weary and faint-hearted when we go through suffering, when we don't get our way, when we have unexpected loss? But this passage says in verse 3 to consider him. It's referring to Christ. We learned last week we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And why do we do that? Well, we consider him who himself endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Whatever suffering we might go through, Jesus Christ himself has endured, especially in the anguish at the cross, especially in the rejection and the hostility of sinners against himself. Jesus has endured suffering, and so we are to consider him. And Notice what it says in verse 4. It says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I wonder why the writer to the Hebrews would make those remarks in verse 4. Well, if you go back to the early readers of this book in the first century of Hebrews, they had come off the persecution, the Roman Empire persecution from Claudius. These are likely a Christians in community near Rome in Italy and they have experienced the brunt of persecution from the Roman Empire due to the Emperor Claudius. They've come out of that but they're on the verge of another season of testing from the Emperor Nero. 
So this was a very, very difficult time to be a Christian. And so the reason this passage is written is to alert them to the reality of suffering that they will go through. He says here, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now Christ shed his blood. There were the heroes of the faith, remember in Hebrews chapter 11, some were sawn in two, went through all sorts of things and shed their blood and lost their lives. But he's saying here to them, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. I wonder why he said not yet. It might be that they will. We do know that in Roman times there was persecution where Christians lost their lives for their faith. One of the things about the mystery of suffering in the Bible and the whole arc of Scripture is that in some mysterious way the followers of Christ share in the sufferings of Christ. This is a theme throughout the New Testament. That because the way that Christ was treated by a sinful world is how we will be treated as we follow him in a sinful, sinful world. I think it's interesting in verse four that he says, in your struggle against sin. And I wonder why he would say, in your struggle against sin. He could have said anything about the nature of their struggle. Called, he called it a struggle against sin. You know what's, what's uh, really great about the Bible Francis Schaeffer used to say this, that only the Bible has sort of the key that unlocks reality for us. And when the Bible talks about sin, that word may not be used as much in our culture, but it diagnoses the actual dilemma of humankind. Both the sin that we all have in our hearts and the fight that we have against that sin, but also living in a fallen world of sin where people treat each other poorly. So that's the reality of suffering, and I want to just take a moment and talk briefly about it uh, because I want to go to a wide-angle lens. I realize that it's, it's very challenging to talk about the topic of suffering, especially at a time when, when uh, we have such grievous, grievous losses so close to so many of us. And I think it's worthwhile for us to look at, if you will, the big picture of scripture about suffering. So this perhaps could be the, one of the most important takeaways of this sermon is to look at the arc of scripture, the overall larger story of scripture about suffering. Do you notice these banners we have over here? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Those are there for more than decorations because they represent the four-act play, if you will, the four-act drama of the larger redemptive story of Scripture. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of mankind. One of the most important things we can do is find ourselves in God's larger story, that we would understand it. That's why it's really important to understand doctrine and theology and the teaching of the Bible because it helps us know what God is doing in the world. It helps us understand our place in it. So just a couple of comments about these four banners. Think through these, this four-act drama of God's larger story in Scripture. So the first act was creation. We learn about that from Genesis 1 and 2. God created the world good. It was the way things were designed to be. If you go back and look at the creation story, if you look at the story of marriage and the story of the Sabbath and the story of God's rest and all the things that God did in the, in the garden. There were no tears, there was no sin, there was no suffering. 
There was no cancer. There was no death. It was the way things were designed to be. But then we get to that second banner there, the fall. This is Genesis chapter three, and throughout pretty much the rest of the Bible was the effect of the fall. The fall, as recorded in Genesis three, was the time when sin entered the human race. It's an interesting connection, though, between Genesis three and Genesis chapter four, because in Genesis chapter four, you have the first murder. And it helps you understand that humankind is like a t the, the ship Titanic that has sunk. That is the impact of the reality of mankind's rebellion, of our own free will against God. God paid humanity a, quite a compliment to entrust us with a free will. And so the result of that was the fall into sin of the human race. Now how does that relate to suffering? Well, suffering is really a mystery. I think that when people go through suffering, sadly, they might link their suffering to some correlation between I must have done something wrong so God is punishing me, which is false. They might link it to uh, decide that God is mad at them or whatever it might be. And, there's, there's, and it's important to understand what is really going on in the fall. Suffering is a mystery, but we know that after the fall, we look at Genesis 4, we learn that a lot of things entered the human race. One of the things that entered was death. Sickness entered the human race. Rebellion against God and man's inhumanity to man. So if you look at sort of this checkered human history where there's all this beauty, there's also all of this tragedy. So just as Cain murdered Abel in Genesis chapter four, Throughout history, we see accounts of man's inhumanity to man. Did you know that the Bible actually says in James chapter one that God does not tempt us to sin? He might test us with suffering, but he does not tempt anyone to sin. That is not in God's nature to do that. That is simply our rebellion. The other thing about living in a fallen war world that's important to know is that set in motion a kind of theological Murphy's Law, which says if something can go wrong, it will. Meaning there's all kinds of things, because we live in a broken world, that even the creation was affected. Even, even uh, the tragedies uh, of, of you know, storms or whatever it might be, we just live in this world, this, this world that convulses with the effects of the fall. And everybody in this room is affected by it. You're, you're affected by it because you have a sinful heart, as I do. You're affected by it because you have families that break up. You're affected by it because there's sickness that comes in. There are people who die. There are things that happen because we have these bodies and these bodies decay and these bodies die. I think of a pastor friend of mine who, said, who says these words. He says, I hate cancer. I hate cancer. My mom died of cancer. That's not something to be... Uh, trite about uh, loss and death and premature death and all of those things, but they're part of living in a fallen world, and it's part of the mystery of suffering. One of the things that God does, though, is that, as we've said, there's a hunger for community, and God has brought us into community as a church. So how do we as a community respond to suffering? When I was, when Molly and I lived in Richmond, Virginia, we were part of a 
of a wonderful church that went through all kinds of suffering. And I saw and I learned as I observed that body function how deep their theological commitments were, how deep their understanding was of the sovereignty of God. But I also learned how God's mercy and God's compassion and God's care were expressed through the church. So in our community, in a healthy community, when somebody's going through something, we don't try to fix them, we grieve with them. The Bible says to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we weep with them. We understand that people need space to grieve and to be sad. We're not trying to make them snap their fingers and become joyful. We grieve and we weep with them. We also offer care and support. I love the way you all bring meals on, you know, whether it's babies being born or people going through tragedy and loss or sickness or whatever, the way the body of Christ responds. And these are inklings, you guys. These are inklings of heaven on earth. This, these are inklings of how the church ought to function, which leads us to redemption. So we've talked about creation, fall, but what happened in redemption? Well, some people say, why doesn't God just put an end to injustice? Why doesn't God put an end to evil that exists in the world? Why doesn't God put an end to the effects of the fall? Could I say something to you about that? When, you, when we ask, why doesn't God do something? Here's what I want to say to you. God has, and God will. I'll tell you what I mean by that. He has because of the redemption, the work of Christ on the cross. What happened at the cross was the devil was defeated by Christ, the great enemy of our souls, the great tempter in the garden. The devil was defeated. Death was defeated through his resurrection. Reconciliation with God came about because Christ died on the cross. And even beyond that, rep reconciliation between neighbors, between people. We talked about Cain and Abel. The Bible warns us as Christians to not fall in the trap of Cain. First John talks about that. It says to love one another. What makes that possible is the redemptive work of Christ. Not only the work of Christ, but redemption applied to change our hearts. And in doing that, Christ established a community that we call the church that is the visible representation of the kingdom of God on earth that is a healing force to bring hope to the world, to bring compassion to the needy, to bring justice to the world. God has set up, because of Christ establishing his church, that's where you and I find ourselves in the story. That is why Lake Baldwin Church exists, to be a redemptive force in everybody that comes our way and as we go out into the world. But then one day, restoration. This has not happened yet, but restoration. That's gonna be, as uh, Tolkien said, when everything sad becomes untrue. Revelation chapter 21 and 22, when God wipes away every tear, when there's no more death and no more sickness and no more sin and there will be a total restoration, that is why we say that God has done something and God will do something, but right now you and I are in this period of suffering and God sheds his light on that in his word. I realize that perhaps what I shared with you, especially if you're in the thick of it, is not designed to be a trite mental exercise. It's an overview of the redemptive story and it helps us begin to see and to find ourselves in God's redemptive story, but it doesn't answer all our questions, does it? It certainly doesn't take away the pain.
Now, the next thing that happens in this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 is the next several verses. So I want to take a look at those because the second thing, we talked about the mystery of suffering. The next stepping stone across that river is the mystery of discipline. Look at what it says in verse 7. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. One of the things that it says in, uh, in the New International Version, if you read that version, it says to, en to endure hardship as discipline. There's a sense in which God wants us, when we go through, like in, in the case of these, the early readers of this passage, they were gonna go through persecution. When we go through hard times, whether big things or small things, the stuff that we all go through, we are to, to view it through the lens of discipline, to view and endure hardship as discipline. Now, for some of us here, the word discipline might not be like the greatest word that we want to hear uh, because it might bring up connotations of very hurtful things as we were growing up in our lives. But in the next couple of minutes, what I'd like to do is I would like, you, I would like to encourage you, I would like to do whatever I can to help you love the discipline of God because it says in this passage that he does it as a father, as a loving father. We just sang how deep the father's love for us. And so behind what seems like very hard discipline, the mystery is, is that it seems, it feels so painful in the moment. But behind it is the smiling face of God. Behind it is God's loving heart. Several days ago, our granddaughter, uh, who is named Wells, we call her Wellsy, was visiting with us. Her parents and her live uh, nearby here. And Wells was visiting us. Now, Wells is gonna be two years old on June 20th, so she's pretty young. She's about the most beautiful baby you could ever see in your life. She's got red hair. Um, she is starting to just sort of come alive. She's walking and all this stuff. So they were over at our house, and I think we were watching like Jim Gaffigan or something on Netflix because our daughter was down from D.C., and we were just hanging out, just wrapped up dinner. And I think I was in the kitchen working. Everybody was in the sofa watching Jim Gaffigan or something on TV. And I'm standing there working, and Wells marches into the kitchen. Now, because I've been cleaning up, I've got a trash can there. It's got a can on top of it. Somebody had some sparkling water, had a bunch of other stuff in the trash can. I'm working away, and Wells comes in, and Wells sticks her hand into the trash can, and she wants to take that, like, that really glittering green can, and she starts messing around. Well, grandfathers don't know how to do discipline, do they? Like, we don't know how to do that. So I just turned to her, I look, I said, I said, Wells, don't touch that, okay? That's all I said. Just, Wells, don't do that. Well, I don't know how much English Wells knows. She's not even two years old. But do you know that when I said that, her hand went like this, and she pulled away. I'm like, I am such a great grandparent right now. I'm just amazing. <laughs> well, a little bit later, I find out that Wells has gone back into the family room where they're watching TV and crawled up into her mother's lap and is just bawling because of what her, because I said no to her. Well, that's a little bit of a dilemma for me because I really want to be loved by my granddaughter, right? And so she's over there crying and, 
And uh, so I decide, I thought, I'm going to go make up to her. Like, we're going to get, you know, we can work this out. I walk over, I sit next to my daughter. Wells is in my daughter's lap. And, uh, and Wells is kind of crying. And, and she'd actually stopped crying at that moment. But her face was buried in Mary-Kate's chest. And I sat there, and I, I got her attention and kind of smiled and just wanted to reconcile, you know. And she looks at me. And then she goes, and then she just starts bawling again, just by, just by looking at me. And I thought, man, I cannot win. So she buries her face in Mary, Mary Kate's chest again. Well, do you really guys realize what that does to my heart to have had to said no to Wells? And now she doesn't like me anymore. It's like it's going to ruin the rest of our relationship for the rest of our lives. Well, the next day she came over and I saw her. She was as happy as ever. So I guess she's resilient and she can handle, <laughs> handle that. Well, that's just a little, a little picture of a glimpse into um, what it's like to be on the receiving end of what we might call the mystery of discipline. Now, what the writer to Hebrews wants to do is talk about that. So uh, Look at verse 7 again. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Oh, by the way, I need to help you love the word discipline, so hold on just a second. You know what discipline means in the original Greek word? The Greek word is paideia, and it actually means training. So it's not necessarily like you're smacking them up the side of the head or something like that, but whatever you do to be able to give training to a child. So in a way, I was training Wells to not put her hand in the trash. I'm going to think twice about that next time. She's going to start to get that. But it's kind of like, kind of like training her. And it's sort of like when, uh, when Mary-Kate, who's Wells' mother, I remember when she was learning to drive and... You know, you think about it, driving, you don't just learn from a book. You have to get your learner's permit. You have to go through driver's ed. You got to go through all that stuff. And, and I still remember when Mary-Kate had her learner's permit, she, you can't learn to drive from a book. You've got to have experience there. You've got to have paideia. You've got to have training. And so one day we were going along, and we were, she was driving, and I was in the seat next to her, and we were going to make a left turn and had a green light, but the arrow was off. So all the oncoming traffic was coming. And Mary Kay just turns right. And I'm like, I'm dead. It's just going to be. But we made it through that time. But it's just, it's, it's all part of learning. It's all part of growing. It's all part of training and, and paideia. So you got to have driver's ed. And a lot of life is like that. One of the things I like about uh, when Heather was up here and she was having all those, uh, the junior volunteers who are going to be in Splash, is it's like paideia. They're actually having to step outside their comfort zone. They're actually putting their faith into action. Faith is like a muscle. It needs to be exercised. So think about this. God, as a heavenly father, is orchestrating paideia or training in all of our lives all the time. It's always going on, and we need to realize that behind the scenes, in the mystery of discipline, it's paideia, and God is working in our lives. Look at verse 8. He says, what if, it was like, what if God didn't do that? It would be a crazy world. Look at verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I understand, did a little research, that what happened back in the Roman world is that these Roman fathers would have children by these other wives or whatever, but then they would have children by their actual wife. 
And those children would be there like be sort of raised with discipline, but the rest of them were referred to here as illegitimate children, meaning they didn't get the benefit of the discipline. And so, you guys, this is what's wrong with America today. There's got people all over that are not being raised with paideia. They're not being trained. They're not growing. They're not learning the things that they need to learn. They're not having to do chores. They're not having to experience consequences for their pain. Uh, we treat chi children as if they're sovereign. They make all the decisions, uh, decisions for the family, and there's, there's paideia missing. Well, what the Bible's saying here is that fatherly and parental discipline is really good for us. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, even if they weren't perfect in their discipline. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So you look at that whole thing about God's training and God's discipline, and you realize that the Christian life is not just about acquiring knowledge. Discipleship is not just about acquiring knowledge, but it's actually getting out of our comfort zone, putting our faith into action, serving others, loving others, serving the city, serving the world, serving each other, serving in splash, just like those kids are doing, whatever it might be, and that puts our faith into action, and it lends meaning to those uh, trying times when we go through trials, like rejection, like loss, like suffering, not getting our way, whatever it might be. So that's discipline, the mystery of discipline. One more thing I wanna talk about before we wrap up our time together is I wanna talk, thirdly, we've talked about the mystery of suffering, we've talked about the mystery of discipline, from God's word, this is not me, this is God's word. The third thing is the mystery of transformation. The mystery of transformation. When I was a young Christian, I learned something about trials and about suffering that has really stuck with me over the years. And it's, it's not easy to remember it when you're going through it. But he talked to me about how the process of in ancient times how silver was refined. The way to make silver pure was to heat it up, heat it up, and what would happen is all this dross would come to the top and the dross could be wiped off. But it didn't get it all and so you'd have to heat up the silver again, more dross would come to the top and it would be wiped off. And it's just this long-term process. And you can, know where, you can tell where this is going. The Christian life, sanctification, spiritual growth, is filled with times when stuff happens because we live in a fallen world, but whatever it is, it happened to Joseph in the book of Genesis, and it happens throughout the Bible, that in all of these situations, the, the, the heat turns on and the dross rises to the top, and though it's painful, that dross can be wiped away. And my friend told me, this was a guy discipling me, he said, when would the when would the silversmith know that he was done? And it's when he could look down at that silver and see his image in the silver. And you realize that the spot that we're in is because of the fallen world, we were created in the image of God. We were created to be holy and beautiful and all of that. We were created in his image, but that image has fallen. And so what redemption involves, the redemption of Christ, it includes this renewal according to God's image that this is part of his plan, that he's wiping the dross away. I've told you about how during the third year of Lake Baldwin Church, at least in my life, 
it was a time of significant testing because there was so much dross in my life. And when I went through the testing, when I went through all the torpedoes that hit the boat and all that we went through, what happened in my life, and it was very difficult at the time, I would be lying awake in bed and Molly would think I was gonna have a heart attack. What was going on, but this dross would come to the top and it was feedback I was getting and it was hard things, but dross would come to the top and it would be things like pride or defensiveness or making, about, making it about me or not loving well or being a victim or whatever it might be and all those things would come to the top. Now, in my own life, I do not believe that God has done in the dross still coming to the surface, but I will say that one of the hardest years of my life was 2008 and that is when the most dross came to the surface. That is when I clung to the gospel as never before and really learned to understand the gospel and continued in that growth process. But I still have dross coming up. I still have stuff every week where I see myself being prideful or defensive or angry or whatever it might be. And I know that behind it all is this process that God has me in and I think has all of us in, in transformation. You say, well, Mike, where do you see that? The mystery of transformation. Look again at Hebrews 12, verse 10. It says, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Holiness is not like this boring, dry, you know, who would want that type of thing? When you think of holiness, think of the Ten Commandments. Think of the beauty of that, especially through the lens of the gospel. That's where God wants to bring us to renew us, to grow us, to transform us. And then verse 11, it says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It seems painful in the short run. You know, a lot of this, a lot of the hardship, we don't really see the hand of God, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God until way after the fact and we can look back. It's a lot easier for me to talk about 2008 now than it was back then because I was, back then I was so disoriented, I, I couldn't even see straight and I needed the help of my wife and the people that were closest to me during that time. You know, this uh, title of the message is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. There was actually a hymn that was written in the 1700s by a man by the name of William Cowper. William Cowper, when he was young, his mom died at the age of, when he was six years old he went off to a boarding school and lived under such bullying and abuse at the boarding school that for the rest of his life he carried trauma in his life that led to depression. In his 30s, his dad died. In his 30s, his best friend died of drowning. And he had these bouts of depression throughout his life. Even as a Christian, William Cowper went through bouts of depression. He at one point was in an asylum because that's what they did with people that were going through things like that back in those days. And there was a minister of the gospel who visited with him and introduced him to the good news of Christ, introduced him to redemption. And that was when William Cowper, his heart opened up and he understood for the first time that there was a God who loved him and he put his faith in Christ. He went on to meet John Newton, who was the writer of Amazing Grace. He was mentored by John Newton. And it was during that time that actually John Newton encouraged him to write the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. 
Charles Spurgeon said this about the sovereignty of God. He said, God's sovereignty is a doctrine for rough weather. It is a mysterious doctrine. But when the veil is removed and we can just get a glimpse at the heart of God, the love of God, the power of God, the beauty of God, and the sovereignty of God. The other day I was listening to this song. I was thinking about my dear friends, our dear friends, and their loss. And it just gave me a good cry because there's something that music can do better than anything else in our hearts. There's something poetry can do that's better than anything else in our lives. And so for our offertory, we're actually gonna have an opportunity to enter into this song together as Glenn leads us in just a moment. So I wonder if you would pray with me uh, as we wrap up this message. Lord, what a challenging and difficult passage this is and especially when matched up to the painful stories in some of our lives and people even among us. So we pray that by your spirit, you would connect this passage and this story to our hearts even as we listen to this song. Open our eyes to see your love for us and we pray these things with, with gratefulness in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 